The following audio is from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. It's good to be with you this morning. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. But I want to open this by just saying this, that the greatest and best gift you can give your kids today, Dad, is to be an example of a loving marriage. That's the greatest gift you can give kids. You know, the greatest fear of kids today, and statistics will bear this out, the greatest fear of kids today in our culture is the fear that their mom and dad are going to get a divorce. So kids are watching. Kids are, are really nervous about mom and dad. And when your marriage isn't healthy, it scares the kids. And so I want to encourage you today as we go through this passage to think about how you can make a better investment into a healthy marriage and thus leave a greater legacy to your kids. Um, some guys really try really hard, like this guy I want to share with you this morning. It says, this is a husband who tells this story this way. It says, every day I, I leave for work, I put in a hard day, come home dirty and sweaty, stumble in the back door, go to the refrigerator and get something to drink. And then I go into the den and watch television until supper time. I, I decided I would do a better job in the future. So yesterday, before I left work, I, I showered and shaved and put on a clean shirt. And on the way home, I stopped at the florist and bought a bouquet of roses. Instead of going into the back door, like I usually do, I, I went to the front door and rang the doorbell. My wife opened the door and took one look at me and started to cry. When I asked her what was wrong, she said, it's been a horrible day. First, Billy broke his leg and had to have it put in a cast. I no sooner returned home from the hospital. Your mother called and told me she's coming for three weeks. And I tried to do the wash and the washing machine broke and there was water all over the basement and now you come home drunk. Uh, I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you this morning. We're going to look at a passage that you're really familiar with. You've probably heard it at practically every wedding ceremony. And what I don't want you to do this morning is turn it off just because you know this passage. Let's read it again. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 29. I want to read to you this morning. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation because I like the way they write it. It says, And you husbands must love your wives with the same love Christ showed the church. Does that scare anybody? I mean, that's a tall order. That is a tall order, men. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by baptism and God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church, without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man is actually loving himself when he loves his wife. No one hates his own body, but lovingly cares for it, just as Christ cares for his body, which is the church. What an awesome calling and comparison of Christ loving the church as we as men are to love our wives and our families. I mean, it's a tall order, and it's a scary order. But, I, you know, it's a challenge. And I want you to take it as a challenge this morning, not as something that would defeat you. 
Because there's three kinds of love that I think he describes in this passage that I want to share with you this morning. That he's saying, in order to be a heavenly dad or a heavenly husband, these are three basic qualities that you need to have in a relationship. Number one is sacrificial love. Number two is a sanctifying love. And the third one he represents here is a self-love. Let's look at the sacrificial love. He says, And you husbands must love your wives with the same love Christ showed the church, and he gave up his life for her. Well, I ask myself the question, when did Christ give his life up for us? Well, unfortunately, actually for us, it was fortunate that he gave up his life while we were what? Yet sinners. You got a sinful wife, right? She's not perfect. I mean close, but she's not perfect, right? So you're to love sacrificially love your wife while she's still a sinner. What does that look like? Well, it means that you need to love your wife when she's crabby and critical. You know those PMS moments? We need to love our wives when she's maybe stubborn and controlling. We need to sacrifice for a wife when she's maybe insensitive and demanding. Maybe when your wife is irresponsible or when your wife refuses to forgive you. Or when she constantly worries or maybe when she's driven by perfectionism and it drives you crazy. You know, those are the times that we need to be sacrificially loving our wives. Well, how do I do that? Well, you know, what Christ did for us is he forgave us. And so we need to have that attitude as well because his love covered a multitude of our sin, didn't he? And our love needs to cover a multitude of sin that our wife may have and our kids may have. We need to go the extra mile with that sacrificial love. But I'm also, also not to only love her when she is in sin, but I'm to love her unconditionally. It says that we to love the our wives like Christ loved the church, and so he's describing this agape love, as we all know, and this agape love means unconditional love. And what's really hard for us as men is that we're wired a little differently, of course, and so men are a lot more competitive, maybe a little more comparative. And because of that, because of our competitive nature, it's easy for us to keep score. And when we keep score in a relationship, we have expectations, right? And sometimes those expectations can get out of control. And when those expectations get out of control, we put people in a performance mode. For instance, maybe we have a greater demand for sexual intimacy or we have this expectation that our wives have got to look just like she did when we got married. Or we have this idea that she needs to be a better housekeeper or have greater financial accountability or better mothering skills or she needs to be a better cook. All those things kind of get communicated sometimes via our expectations. And when we do that, we put our wives in a performance place. And we know culturally from studies is that one of the greatest problems women are suffering from today is self-esteem issues. They're never good enough. They can't measure up to their own expectations. And when we pile them on as a husband, we're not loving them unconditionally. We need to figure out how to love them for who they are. You know, when we took that vow, all of us did when we got married, for better, for worse, right? For richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. That's an unconditional kind of vow that we made. 
And so unconditional love needs to be communicated for who they are, not what we want them to be. Well, it goes on in this passage, and it says something else about our love. It says, He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by baptism of God's word. And verse 27, he did this to present to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Now, you wives, you know, you've been working on that for a long time, right? Your blemishes, your spots, and your wrinkles. You know, you realize that's not your job? That, that's your husband's job, you know? So do you want him to put on your makeup? No, you don't want to do that. Okay. All right. Without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, instead, she will be holy and without fault. This is powerful. I call this the sanctifying love. You see, as a spiritual leader, as a husband, we're to set our family apart so that they can be presented to God without spot or blemish. What does that look like? Well, in essence, what we're trying to do is create an environment as a spiritual leader so that our wives and our kids can be all that God wants them to be. And when we block that opportunity by our own bad attitudes or by our own control mechanisms or whatever it is, we're not going to be able to present them spotless and blameless before God. And unfortunately, it doesn't say the wives have to do that for the husbands. we got to do that. That's a tall order. That's, that's something that God really expects of us. And that's why it's so critical to be a spiritual leader in your home. Over the years, I've had many, many women come into my office as a pastor, and one of their greatest desires is to say, I wish my husband would be a spiritual leader. And, of course, the husband will come into the office and say, no, she doesn't. She wants Jesus. And so there's this this dichotomy of thinking out there. What does really a spiritual leader look like? And I'd like to simplify it a little bit for you this morning because sometimes we think that being a spiritual leader is this person that has to be so deeply committed to God that, that he, you know, there's this Shekinah glory hanging over your head all the time like you're just a super spiritual giant. And that's not what we're talking about here. It doesn't mean that you have to know the Bible inside out and backwards and forward. It doesn't mean that you have to be some spiritual leader in the church or whatever. But I thought, what does it really mean? As I thought about a spiritual leader, I thought, well, let's go back to Christ again. And we know that, number one, Christ was a mentor. He hung out with 12 guys primarily, and he was a role model. And I think it's important for us as men to realize that we need to be role models when it comes to our family. It's so hypercritical, and I can't emphasize this enough, because you know as well as I do that any psychologist or any person will tell you that the role that you play as an earthly father represents how your children will see the heavenly father. And that's, again, a difficult thing, because if our kids filter their heavenly father's behavior as to your behavior, we've got to learn how to be a better mentor and role model. And so here I've described some things that I think perhaps a good mentor will do if they're going to be a spiritual leader. Number one is somebody who just simply talks and listens to God. We're not talking about a big deal here, but it's at least somebody who has a dialogue, some type of relationship to God where they're consistently talking to God and listening to God. 
And secondly, maybe someone who just wants to learn from God's Word. You know, there should be at least a hunger. You may not know everything about God's Word, but there should at least be a desire in your heart to know more of God's Word, to learn. And a spiritual leader, I think, is somebody who makes it a priority to hang out with godly people. Somebody who's willing to have fellowship, somebody who's willing to, to come to church, to maybe be in a community group, somebody who, who really takes seriously the need to hang out with other people who have a biblical worldview. And I think somebody who is a mentor is somebody who is obviously available and approachable. For the disciples, Jesus was pretty much always available to them, except when he went to be with his heavenly father to have a quiet time with the Lord. And so somebody needs to be available and approachable like we saw on the screens. Someone maybe who just simply walks their talk. Somebody who has this spiritual integrity and authenticity. And I think th those are, are principles of being a mentor that can be carried through in a lot of different ways, but it doesn't necessarily say that, again, that I have to have this deep sense of God's word and this deep commitment, but we're talking about simply just being a mentor, having a desire, having the, the will to initiate, to take these steps. And then secondly, I think a, a good spiritual leader is what I would consider a reconciler because that's what Jesus did, right? He reconciled our relationship to God the Father. And when he went to the cross, he kind of bridged that gap. And so I think men need to figure out how to be a better reconciler, which number one, I guess, would, if I would, uh, you know, bring it down to earth, is that we need to learn how to be better peacemakers. In other words, we need to be good conflict resolvers. I shared in the first service that I remember uh, for a couple who came to my office many, many years ago, and and uh, they had been married for 13 years. And um, they had never resolved a conflict in 13 years of marriage. So I asked them, I said, well, how do you guys deal with conflict? Well, they said, well, my wife out-talks me all the time. Anybody relate to that? So she can, she can buffalo me in a conversation, and we have a conflict, and she's always on top of things, and I can't deal with it. I don't know what to say, so I just leave. I said, oh, that's great. So he literally leaves. He gets out, well, he leaves the house and goes for a drive for several hours. And he comes back and they never resolve anything. They just go to bed at night and they start the next day over again. For 13 years, this is the way they resolve conflict. And I challenged this guy. His name was Clay. I said, Clay, you cannot be a recluse. You've got to be a reconciler. You can't just withdraw. That's not how you resolve conflict. And we began to give them some skills about how to resolve conflict and be able to listen to one another and be a peacemaker and a reconciler and really dealing with issues. And I'm happy to say they're a wonderful, happily married couple, and now he's an elder in the church. But he learned how to be a reconciler. See, this means that you have to be a guy who's willing to say, I'm sorry, once in a while. That's not easy for some of us guys. It means that we can't let the sun go down in our anger We've got to deal with issues. We can't just let things go, you know, that's so easy to think that, oh, well, time will heal it, or it'll get fixed, or, and so we let it go, and we let it go, and we let it go. We need to be much more, in, take greater initiative to, to get to the bottom of things. One thing that's been very difficult for Lynn and me all of our married life is we can't 
We hate to have unresolved conflict. We've got to fix it. That's the type of man that we need to be. And then thirdly, I think about being an intercessor. That's what God does. That's what Jesus does for us. Scripture tells us that he's our advocate. He's our intercessor. Along with the Holy Spirit, he's our advocate. The Holy Spirit's our intercessor. And, and so I see this in, in, in the reality of, of how it works out in, in a husband or a man's life is that we need to be willing to pray for our family. And I think it's critical that we pray out loud for our family in front of our kids, pray with our kids, pray with our wife. One of the greatest battlegrounds in married life today is a husband and wife praying out loud together. I did a survey many years ago in a church that I was in, and I asked how many people prayed together as a married couple. You wouldn't believe maybe 20% of the couples actually pray together out loud. It's a battleground in relationships, and I think it's so critical for men to be that prayer warrior, at least be able to pray with your kids and to pray with your wife out loud once in a while, because we need to be in, in uh, people or guys who are willing to stand in the gap for our family. And then fourthly, we need to be a protector. John 10 talks about Jesus being the good shepherd, right? And it says that the sheep will know the good shepherd's voice. Why? Because they have this familiarity. They know their shepherd. See, a family needs to feel secure around you. They need to know that when dad is around, when he speaks, there's a sense of protection and security. I remember waking up when I was a kid and I'd hear a noise in the house, you know, the the floor would crack. We had the old wood floors, and, and I would think the boogeyman was going to get me, you know. And I would cry out once in a while and say, Dad, are you awake? And Dad would say, yeah, I'm awake. I said, okay, I'm okay. And I wonder how your voice is in your family when you speak. Do people feel secure? Do the kids feel secure? Do the grandkids feel secure? Because there's a sense they know you. They know you're going to take care of you. They feel secure around you. There's no sense of fear. And that's the way we want to represent the Heavenly Father, right? Our Abba Father. So do you have a sanctifying love? It's a tough order. But there's a third concept here that for a long time, I couldn't figure out exactly what this passage was saying, and I think I got a handle on it this time. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. That sounds kind of narcissistic when you first read that. For a man is actually loving himself when he loves his wife. What? what? Hey, where did women come from, according to creation? They came out of our bodies, didn't they? You know what I love about this? What I think Paul is saying, what I think the Lord is saying to us, is that our oneness, that mystery of two becoming one, is so unique and so powerful that when we're really loving ourselves, we are loving our wives. Because the two have become so one. And because a wife has come from my body, when I'm loving my body, I'm actually loving my wife. So every decision I make, everything that I do has a reflection on my wife because we're one. That's a powerful, powerful thought. And so I started to think, well, how do we do that? How do we do that? 
Well, I think the first thing as men, we need to get in touch with our own hearts. Because if we're going to have this intimacy, this oneness, there needs to be a heart-to-heart connection. I want to show you a picture that I've had in my office for many years. Um, have you ever done this? Have you ever seen this chart before? Um, because what's really scary is that us men, sometimes we're not very in touch with our feelings. And when the feelings crop up, we like to kind of put them in our compartment, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But have you ever asked your husband, how are you feeling today? I'm fine. I'm okay. It's good. When in reality, there's probably some feelings that haven't been identified. Well, here's an opportunity. I suggest that you might take this off the internet, plaster it on your refrigerator, because the next time you ask your husband, there's probably about, let's see, uh, five times uh, six, there's 30 different responses that your husband could give you. And so you could go over to the chart, and I know that somebody told me after the first service, they have one of these on their refrigerator with a magnet. And so that the husband can come out that day, and he can put the magnet on which face that he's feeling. It's really hard sometimes for us men to get in touch with our hearts. And why? Because a man's emotional world is a lot like a tackle box. Maybe you've heard this before. But it has 500 little compartments with all kinds of little nifty lures and hooks and old junk that's been saved and new things that nobody knows about. And he's got all these strategies, and he goes from one compartment to the next to the next, and most of the strat- or, uh, most of the men I know, including myself, can jump from one little compartment to the next a hundred times a day. And our jobs often demand that of us. So we think it's neat to live in all these little compartments. But a wife's emotional structure, it's totally different. It's more like a river. And river flows, and it flows, and it flows. And it flows. And what we need to learn how to do, man, is close the tackle box with all its neat little stuff that will probably never be appreciated by wives. Close it up, take off the waders, and get into the river. We spend all this time fishing out of the river and keeping dry from the river. We need to get into the river. Hmm. You see, what men have a tendency to do is compartmentalize their emotions. And they can have an emotional bent in some area of their life, and they can stick it over here in a neat little compartment. And when you as a wife ask them, how are you feeling? They're fine. Why? Because they've already taken care of that. They stuffed it over here in their little compartment, and they've repressed it really well. And so they don't even know what they're thinking. Because they haven't been flowing in the river. They're at a new time, in a new moment, in a new day. They say one of the best ways to really get to know what a man's thinking and feeling is to do something with them, a task. Because men have a tendency to share a little bit more openly when they're going doing a task. If you had to sit down and face to face, husband, say, "What are you feeling?" The husband looks at you like, "Huh? I don't know. I'm not sure." So it's really critical that we as men need to know our heart. You see, if we don't know our hearts, then our wives have got to use all that radar that they've got, right? And they got some pretty good radar. My wife reads me like a book. It really drives me crazy. She knows when I'm not feeling right or doing, uh, or being a little down. I mean, she's got it wired completely. But if she asks me what I'm feeling, I'm fine. 
What's really hard for us is that if we can get in touch with our heart so that we can have a heart-to-heart connection. See, what happens in a lot of marriage relationships is we have a head-to-heart connection, and that doesn't work. That's not where intimacy really is. So not only do we need to understand our hearts, we need to be willing to share our hearts. See, our wives need to know us. You know, the reason why we were created, you know, it's really fascinating to me. God does the creation in seven days, right? And so he goes for, for five days and he says, oh, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he creates man and he says, what? It ain't good. What was the problem? He said it wasn't good for man to be alone. Because not only does man need to be known by God, he needs to be known by a significant other. Your wife needs to know you. She desires to know you. And unless you're willing to be vulnerable and transparent and open up and share your heart, she's never going to feel that greater sense of intimacy. But I see all sorts of giggling and laughing and this going on this morning. That's great. You see, the reason why most marriages don't have intimacy is because a husband doesn't share his heart. You know, there's a three-legged stool when we talk about marriage. There's the emotional intimacy, there's the physical intimacy, and there's the spiritual intimacy. And if you leave any one of those out in a marriage relationship, you've got a tough balancing act, right? And it's so critical for us men to really begin to open up a little bit more, and to be a little bit more candid, a little bit more open. And you're going to find that all the other areas of intimacy start to envelop that because you've decided that you can be transparent and vulnerable. Here's the third concept of loving wife like your own body. Live with your wife with an understanding heart. And I would say live with your family with an understanding heart. In 1 Peter, it talks about 1 Peter 3, live with your wife with an, as, in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. So what does that look like? Well, it certainly doesn't look like this guy. This guy's wife was suffering from depression, so out of concern, she takes, him, takes her to a psychiatrist. The doctor listened to the couple talk about their relationships and then said, well, the treatment I prescribe is really quite simple. With that, he went over to the man's wife, gathered her in his arms, and gave her a big kiss, and then stepped back and looked at the woman's glowing face with a broad smile. Turning to the woman's husband, he said, see, that's all she needs to put life back into her. Expressionless, the husband said, okay, doc, I'll bring her here on Tuesdays and Thursdays. (laughs) That guy was clueless. He didn't understand. And I want to just share with you this morning that there's two ways to understand, to be a good listener and to be a good learner. To be a good listener and a good learner. I didn't say a good hearer. I grew up with a dad who was not necessarily a good listener. And it took me quite a few years because the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree for me to be a better listener with my kids and my wife. You see, there's a difference between listening and and hearing. See, when you listen, you validate. You validate the other person. You bring significance to what they have to say. And when you bring significance to what they have to say, they feel understood, right? It all works together. We need to be a good listener. I remember having arguments with my three-year-old daughter. And Lynn would sit in the other room and say, 
can you believe you're having an argument with a three-year-old? And it didn't get a whole lot better all the way through almost high school. And we would sit there, and, Lynn would, and my daughter would say some of the most irrational things. And, and you know, teenagers, they never say anything terribly rational anyways, right? Anyway, and um, and I, I, I would just go, honey, that's not true. That's not the way it works. That doesn't make any sense. You know, and, and Lynn would say, just shut up and listen. And it took me a while to figure that out. You see, we've got to be better listeners if we're going to live with our wives and our kids with an understanding way. And we need to be better learners. Tim Kimmel wrote about it in a book not too long ago where he said, we need to be students of our kids. You know, when we quote that scripture, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he won't depart from it, we forget the part about in the way he should go. We have a tendency to make our kids go in the way we should go. And so we live vicariously through our kids when in reality we need to be such students of our kids we understand who they are, how they're wired, and to make them celebrate their uniquenesses and their gifts. And so that when we train them up in that way, then when they grow old, they won't depart from what? From how God has really wired them. And so we can't be good learners and good listeners if we don't spend the time. Do you know that the statistics tell us that the average father spends 10 minutes a week face-to-face with his kids? 10 minutes a week. We cannot be good learners and good listeners if that's the kind of personal contact we have with our kids. We're just going to simply be observers, not learners, not listeners. So it's critical for us to live with our wife and our kids in an understanding way, which means we need to be good learners and good listeners. Wow. Wow. Well, Dad, happy Father's Day. (laughs) You know, this is a tall order, isn't it? This this is, um, you know, I share this with couples in premarital counseling. We share it at weddings. You've heard about this in church. And it's a challenge, you know. I, I want you as men to think about this today, not to feel down in yourselves like you just don't get it, but to take this as a challenge because this is a high calling. What a privilege, What a privilege to be called as men. The greatest, I think, the greatest occupation in the world, you know, you know, is being a dad. And it's a tough call. It's a tough call. And we got dads failing all over the place in our culture today. But, you know, if we can just get a glimpse of how Christ loves us, we're going to do a better job. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Dads that are here this morning, grandfathers. Lord, we don't do it all right, but we want to do it your way as much as we can. And I'm so thankful that I have an Abba Father that understands and loves me in spite of my failures as a dad. I thank you that we live under the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so even as we challenge this morning, to be a better spiritual leader, a better dad. God, I pray that we all know that we're not under a performance basis either with you and that you love us sacrificially and you love us and set us apart so that we can be in heaven and that we're one with you. We're just so thankful for you, Lord Jesus. Give us the strength as dads and as grandfathers to be all that you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.